Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. So again, as I said, we're looking at the topic of prayer in the Christian life, in our series on the Christian life, and um, we'll be in Luke 18. I'm going to turn there as well. I need to, I need to catch up with the rest of you guys. You may have heard this, uh, it's somewhat of a surprising statistic, but uh, it may not surprise you if you've heard it before, but I was reading, and it was a study from uh, just a couple years ago, and it noted that most New Year's resolutions are, people break them, most people break them, their New Year's resolutions, by the second week of February, which is like, I guess that's, you know, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty good, that's pretty bad. I mean, if, um, you have low standards, then, you know, six weeks isn't, isn't terrible. But when we look at the topic of prayer, sometimes we can, almost look back and see where we see a, a line of mistakes that we have in prayer. We, we know it's a good thing that we ought to do, but we know, uh, we realize that we simply don't do it enough. And for a lot of articles that, that I've seen about New Year's resolutions in particular, um, you can find a lot of information now about people telling you why exactly that particular New Year's resolution failed. And it's kind of a post-mortem look at, okay, let's look at the mistakes. Where did you go awry in this particular New Year's resolution? And it's usually the, the expectation of that people don't really understand or they don't really grasp or they don't really have a set measurement of what they're trying to do. For instance, they, they say, oh, I want to lose weight. Well, how much weight do you want to lose? You know, that's, that's a good measurement. Or I want to be healthier. You know, does that mean you know, cutting out refined sugars, or does that mean, you know, adding a Diet Coke to your meal? Like, what are the particulars of this? And usually it's because people have this resolution, they know it's a good thing, but they don't understand how to go about it, that they often fail. And I think the same is true in our own um, prayer lives, that we we don't understand it. To, to us, it's sort of like that thing on the shelf. We know it's a good thing to pray, but how exactly do we go about prayer? Is it just like flossing where we, we know it's a good thing to do, but it's just hard to, you know, to do it every day. I think it's impossible to floss every day. Literally, no one can do it. But if we look at, at our prayer lives, and if we're honest, we will look at a path of, of mistakes and often a, a path of failure in our own lives. And I don't know anyone in particular that has said, oh, I've mastered prayer. You know, I know all about prayer. So today we're going to look at, and the aim of our study today is, is not a complete study of the theology of prayer in particular, nor is, as Robert has mentioned before, nor is it trying to be exhaustive, but we're actually going to look at just some practical, um, the practical application of prayer in our own lives, in the Christian life. And we're going to look at two parables that Jesus taught about prayer that demonstrate the, the nature and the power of prayer and exactly how to approach God in prayer. And I love this because it tells us, reading these two parables, just by way of introduction, they, they tell us that God really knows our struggle in prayer and he's compassionate and he, he knows that it's difficult for us because 
just in the same way of, you know, making a New Year's resolution, maybe next year you can know what not to do. You know, don't have a, a goal that's impossible to hit or, or don't have a goal that's immeasurable. In the same way, Jesus kind of tells us in these parables what not to do in prayer. And I think that's, that's very important. So, and, and I, frankly, I like learning like that. You know, when I try something new or, you know, when I work on the car, and I, which is usually something new every time I work on the car, I always want to look at YouTube videos because I want to know what not to do, what mistakes not to make. Not just because of, you know, my own pride and self-confidence. I don't want to look like a noob when I do this. Do people say that? I think young people, young people are probably like, I don't, we don't say that. But I don't want to, you know, look like a fool. But also, I just don't want to make mistakes right out of the gate. And I think that's why Jesus is telling us these parables. Because he's telling us not to make certain mistakes in our own prayer lives. And so we're going to look at two particular mistakes, but let's read, let us read the text first. We're going to read uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. And this is, it's referring to Jesus right here. And he told them, the disciples particular, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So there's parable one right here. The, the parable, we might call it, if, if you have a little header in your Bible, the parable of the persistent widow. And uh, in this particular context, Jesus had been talking about his, his second coming, uh, a little bit about his, his second coming, and about the difficulties that believers will face and the struggle, struggles they'll face. And so he gives them this encouragement to, to pray and to not lose heart. But what does he tell us to do? To, to not be inconstant in prayer, to, to be persistent in prayer. That's what Jesus encouraged us to do, encourages us to do in this parable. And notice also, he, he says uh, some important things about God and the nature of God that we'll unpack in a little bit. But let's go ahead and read the second parable. This is called, uh, if you have a chapter or a section title, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it says right here in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like, and you can imagine him pointing across the room, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we see the second parable, and it's about the the other issue that um, we can have in prayer is self confidence, and it's it might be the more might uh, be the more um, the problematic issue because it looks good on the outside, but in the end, God sees the humility of the tax collector, and He justifies the tax collector, and so. By these two parables, Jesus basically teaches us what not to do in, in prayer, but we should be encouraged to do, to, to pray and to approach God in prayer because uh, we see in these parables as well the nature of God in prayer. And we realize that prayer is not just simply by these examples, not just simply a spiritual practice, not some sort of ritual that Christians do, but it's a sign of a living, vital faith with God. It's a sign of our relationship with God. Um, the commentator J.C. Ryle said, prayer is the very life breath of true Christianity. So the Christian life should be marked by persistent prayer and by humble prayer. But mostly, and I think the, the thing you should know is that every Christian, and we should all pray like children of God. We should all pray like children of God. And as we go through this, um, this message today, I'm going to give you in a little bit, I'm going to give you five things that happen during prayer that should encourage us to pray. But first, I need to take a, a short digression. Hopefully, it won't, won't, will be, will be actually short. But we're actually going to look at what prayer actually is. Because I'm mentioning the word, and I think it would be right. I think you guys probably deserve, uh, we all deserve a, a standard definition of prayer. What would be a working definition of prayer? If you look out at um, different academic articles that try to research religion and prayer, um, usually there, it's, it's kind of, you know, a, a time of meditation and, and, and its effects are really largely therapeutic in the sense that if you pray with your family, you're, you're going to be closer with your family. Or if you're going through a sickness and, and you pray, you're going to feel better about that, that sickness. You're going to be more encouraged. Now, I'm not saying that those things don't happen, but that is not the end goal of prayer. Nor is the end goal of prayer simply wishful thinking or, or some kind of positive thinking in your, in your life. Or a lot of people think that, you know, it's a set of, of, of words simply to repeat over and over again. Prayer is, you know, you, you recite this particular thing and it becomes a ritual and it becomes detached from your very heart. We have models of prayer in scripture that we can look at, such as the Lord's Prayer, which we will look at, but prayer is much more than the simple recitation of words. If you look at a typical dictionary definition of prayer, it's usually making some sort of appeal to a deity. You know, it's, it's uh, asking a deity or petitioning a deity um, for something. And we come a little bit closer, but I think as Christians, we have to be more specific when we're talking about prayer. I was paging through Tim Keller's book at, uh, uh, on prayer, and he's a, he's a retired pastor now, but I think he has a helpful definition of prayer, and he calls prayer a personal communicative response to 
the knowledge of God. Now, it's, it's not a perfect definition, and it actually kind of sounds very technical. You're like, oh, wow, you know, the lights turn on. What does that exactly mean? But I think it's helpful for two reasons. A personal, communicative re- response to the knowledge of God. It, well, number one, it helps us to understand that prayer, first of all, is addressing God. Prayer is addressing, the, for Christians, to pray like a child of God, we need to know that we, can, we should and only address the true God, the one true God. Many Christians are criticized in public discourse often for, for praying in the aftermath of a national crisis or, for instance, a pandemic such as COVID. And for people who aren't Christians, people in the world, it looks like that these Christians don't want to do anything or they're, they're, they're not going to do anything. And so they're, they're going, they're doing the exact opposite of, of, of making a, a real change in this world. Because this world seeks change by its normal, normal ways, by, by wars or even more peaceful ways such as legislation or, or litigation or just changes top down in public policy. That's how the world seeks change. But Christians, when they pray to God, they seek change, not praying into the air, not, not spouting words or not some kind of ritual um, uh, recitation of some kind of words that we've learned in, in our youth, but we pray to a living God. The world seeks to organize and ch- make change by, by uniting with some sort of political coalition, and then they say, well, change will come after that. But we pray and we make change by uniting ourselves with the ultimate mover, the creator, the all-powerful God. And so that's how really God's people are characterized. If we look at, for instance, this very first parable, where the, the, just as the widow is, is kind of disenfranchised and she has no contacts and, and no real help up in this world, the same way, in the same way Christians, they realize they're not of this world. You know, they're, they're, the, the kingdom of God is not, is not of this world and yet Christians are in this world. And so in our trials, in our struggles, in our persecutions, we simply appeal to the God who is above all. Um, you don't have to turn there, but it's, it's it's something really cool in the way that Hezekiah prays in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 16, where he talks about, and I mentioned it, even in my, my own prayer, that God is enthroned above the heavens. And this is a king of Israel praying to God, understanding that God is enthroned. And remember, if you remember the Lord's Prayer, um, which I think a lot of people do, Jesus taught us to pray like that as well. The privilege we have as children of God, but praying to a deity and praying to an authority that is above all. Matthew 6, 9, Jesus taught, taught us to open our prayers like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And of course, we'll, we'll talk about the Lord's Prayer a little bit more. But notice the, the intimacy that we have with our Father and the access that Christians as children of God have with our Father. But we also access Him reverently, understanding that He's the holy enthroned God. We are sinners. He is way above us. We are not holy like He is. And therefore, He is way above us, and yet we have access to God. So that is what prayer is. We should understand that prayer is appealing to the one true God for our purposes as Christians. I don't know what people else, people call prayer, but really their prayers, I can probably confidently say it's not going to go anywhere because God is the only one who, who can move. God is the only one who can change things, really. 
Some people, I think even in the Christian church, approach God flippantly and, and maybe even arrogantly. You know, the, the sense that, you know, Jesus is just a friend. He's just a pal. You just approach him like a friend. Well, it's true. Jesus is our friend, but we just have to remember that we, we have to approach God, uh, reverently. Some preachers have even taught that, you know, prayer is, is really demanding our own way. It's putting our foot down and demanding that God give us this thing. But this is wrong, really. It ignores God's true authority. And we might even say because it reverses God's authority, it ignores God's authority. It's even devilish in nature. So it's no small matter to pray to God. And it's actually a big deal. And it's a big blessing. But the second thing we should understand about prayer is that prayer is not just addressing God, but it's also responding to God. As kind of Tim Keller said in his definition, it's a response to God. It's, and it's leaning on God's character. Knowing the nature of God really informs the content of our prayers. Why is that? Because God has revealed himself to us first, right? We, I mean, in life, even in the, the scripture tells us that no one actually seeks God. God's the one who seeks us and he reveals himself through us or, or, or to us and he reveals himself by his prophets. And as, as scripture says, he's revealed himself fully by his son. And so when we do pray, understanding the nature and understanding the character of God is a help in our prayers. Maybe you feel in your own personal prayers like the struggle of like, how do, how do I approach God? Like, like you're approaching a, a long distant cousin and you know a little bit about them, but as you know more from scripture about the character of God, you can rest assured and be more confident that what you are asking of God is in line with his character. A good example of, of God openly displaying his character is when God describes himself at the second giving of the law after Moses broke the, the, the tablets containing the law and God gave him new ones. God revealed something about himself and his own character. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 8, God's talking about himself, describing himself, saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and the transgression and sin, but who will by no means clean, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers, on the, uh, of the fathers, on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so God holds in tandem here two elements of his character that he extends to Moses. He reveals him this about himself, that God's a merciful God. God is compassionate. God, asking God for mercy is like pushing at an open door. Isn't that great to know about him? But God is also a God of justice who will by no means clear the guilty. So God's a God of mercy. God is a God of justice. And there's a lot more we can say about the, the nature of God. And that's a whole message in itself. But to understand the nature of God, Jesus kind of condenses it down to these parables. And that's what really what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. Jesus told these parables in a way to help us understand and grasp the nature of God and to help us in our prayer and to encourage us in our prayer by helping us understand what happens when the children of God pray. 
There are five things that happens, and of course, again, disclaimer, this is by no means exhaustive, but this is kind of what we see in these particular two uh, parables. The first one is that God listens to our prayer. I already mentioned that we pray to God, but we do have biblical confirmation that God hears and listens to the prayer of His people. Notice in verse 7 right there in Luke chapter 18, He's saying, will will God not give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? God hears our prayer at whatever hour we may be praying. 4 a.m., 2 a.m., 2 in the afternoon. All those hours, all those seasons of life, God hears our prayers. God is there. God does not sleep. When our friends won't pick up the phone, God will always answer. God's elect here, right here in this particular place simply means the people whom God has saved, the people whom God has set apart and simply means Christians. And so one of the privileges of being a Christian is that you have access to the very throne room of God. This was cause for worship in, in Psalm chapter 116, verses 1 and 2. They, the psalmist opens the psalm with, I love the Lord. Why? Because He has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me, Therefore, I will call on Him as long as I live. I know people have different methods of praying. Some people like to pray silently or some people like to use their voice. And frankly, I like to use my voice in prayer because I just think God does hear my voice. I'm not shouting out to to an empty room, but God does hear and God does listen. And it's because really of Jesus that we have ultimate access to the Father, an ultimate communion with our triune God, even Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For instance, let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, where Paul reminds us that through Him, through Christ, we have access in one Spirit, through the Spirit, to the Father. And so there's the communion kind of with the whole Trinity. It's, it's, we're interacting in God's supremely involved when we approach Him in prayer. That's not to say you have to greet God every single time you pray and say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like, like, but just understand the nature and to the extent to which God is deeply involved when Christians pray. And this is, you know, I, I can talk more about this, and, but this is not this message is not a theology of prayer, but just a few things to let you know. In, in John chapter 16, Jesus tells us to ask for things in His own name. So, so ask in the name of Jesus, and that's why, for instance, we say in Jesus' name, Amen. But also in Romans 8, we're told that the Holy Spirit even helps us when we pray, when we don't know what to pray. And in, um, in Luke chapter 11, we're also told to simply pray for this Holy Spirit of God to fill us. And so God, in His triune nature, is deeply involved in our prayers. That's the depth of the relationship we have with God when we approach God in prayer. Now you might be thinking, you know, I have access, but do I have God's favor Am I, you know, am I, am I bugging God when I do approach Him? What is God's demeanor toward me? You know, we might have access, 
for certain people. Like we have, we might have the house key of a family member, and we know that if we just go barge into their house any day, we would be welcomed. But then, we, for instance, we might end up with the house key of a of a neighbor, a next door neighbor. But and we know, but we know our relationship is a lot different. We can't just barge into their house. It would be weird. In the same way, we might think, are are we really? Is God looking to hear from me? Like, am, am I bugging Him in this way? Am I am I actually reaching God? directly even? Or am I reaching some kind of like lesser angel? Well, the scripture tells us that we have a relationship directly with God. In the Old Testament law, your relationship with God was really mediated through a priest. But through Christ, who is our mediator, our relationship with God is I guess we could say immediate. Our relationship with God is absolutely direct. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses uh, 14 through 15, we read this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So number one, God is not a reluctant hearer. God loves to hear us. And also, God is sympathetic to you, sympathetic to your weaknesses, even. And so, understanding all this, God listens to our prayers. He is our ultimate superior, and yet He wants to condescend and hear from us. I think that's great news. I think that's so comforting as a remembrance to approach God for any reason, for any means, knowing that He will listen. But secondly, what happens when we pray? God works His will in our lives. There's a, you know, there, there's a sign you might have seen. I haven't seen them in a long time, actually. That say prayer changes things, and it's you know it's true. But it's also very vague. We might think, what exactly does prayer change? How does prayer get answered? How do we pray in order to change things? I think that's that last one is, is the best question. Because we have a story right here. We have this parable in which Jesus brings out this lesson. When they pray for this, God will deliver. And we think, what is the secret? God gave them what they asked for. In Luke chapter 18, verses 7, um, in the beginning of verse 8, we read this, And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. God answered their prayer. He gave them what they asked. But remember, this is a parable about the heart and the nature of God. And it's not meant to give us a specific prayer formula. But the point here in the parable is that God is not like the judge. God is not stingy. God, God's heart to give things to His people is open and caring. And in this case, God uses the prayer of His people to act and deliver them justice. In other words, to deliver him something that's close to his nature and something that was according to his will. The content and the, the beginning of our prayer should really begin and ask for God's will. What is God's will? Well, number one, I think one thing we can just note is that 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 through 18 tells us that God's will is simply to rejoice and to pray. So there's one starting point. It tells us rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. But it's also the will of God to work His will in our lives through prayer. And prayer should thus conform us to His will. And our personal needs are thus subservient to God's greater will and His greater plan. We see this in, in particular in Matthew chapter 6, verses, uh, starting in verse 7, which is the Lord's Prayer, what we would recognize as the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to turn there myself. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 says this. We, we, to learn to pray like a child of God, Jesus tells us to not pray like, for instance, the Gentiles in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Notice how Jesus teaches His disciples to pray. He gives us, he gives us this template and, and this form in which to pray, and He orders it very specifically. He starts with God in heaven, the ultimate authority, and then He moves to His will. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and then drops our own particular needs for forgiveness, for the, the sins we've committed, and also for our daily bread, our daily sustenance, but they're dropped below the umbrella of His will. And why is this? Because Jesus is trying to teach us about the nature and the goodness of our Father who knows our needs. If we need justice, God knows we need justice. If we, if we need sustenance, God knows we need sustenance. So all we need to do is reach out and say, God, I want Your will in my life because knowing these things, we trust Him, and we grant Him the authority. Now this question might be forming in the back of your head that might say, if God already knows our needs, why do we pray? And I think that's a good question. Because Jesus does say, your Father knows what you need before you ask. So why exactly do we pray? I think the assumption behind that question is that God needs would need information. Is it only information that God needs? Because if He already has the information, why doesn't He act upon it? But of course, you know, God, God needs information and He needs to, to survey the situation. But in reality, God knows our needs already. And so we might think, well, well, what is it then? What is the part of prayer? Well, what is our motivation to pray? Well, think about this. To whom would you rather go with a medical emergency? Would it be your doctor whom you've had for 20 years? Or would it be someone who doesn't know you at all? 
Just think about that. In that same way, God is trying to comfort us and to say, because I know all about you, you should come to me. The physician of your soul knows all about you, and that should comfort us in in petitioning him with our prayers. It's not a reason to not pray, but it's a reason to pray. So God wants to work his will in our lives, and he wants to do it by prayer. And all the things we might ask, we ask under the umbrella of his will. Trusting that the will of God is good. The last thing, or the the last thing, I should say the third thing, it's not the last, sorry, that happens when we pray is also we, we exercise our faith. Jumping back to Luke chapter 18, Uh, We read this. It's kind of a stern warning from Jesus in verse uh, 8, the end of verse 8. He says, nevertheless, after he gives a lesson of this parable, he says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? We might ask, what does, what does, uh, what makes prayer work exactly? What's What's the formula? What's the secret sauce to make prayer work? Is it Is it the words? Is it the loudness? Is it the raising of hands? Is it the kneeling? Well, Jesus is telling us when we pray persistently, when we don't give up, when we pray appealing day and night, that's faith. And faith is what works. Faith is what gets prayer answered. And faith is a um, sign that we trust God. Persistence in prayer, however, is a sign of the quality of our faith. If you look at James chapter 1, starting in verse 6, James tells us, he's talking about prayer, about appealing to God, and he says, let him ask in faith, the person who prays to God, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. When we are persistent in prayer, trusting God, relying on God, praying more than once for things, that is actually a sign of faith. Not a a sign of a lack of faith, as people might suppose, but it's a sign of our great faith. And it helps us and it stabilizes us in our faith. So that's another thing that happens in prayer is that we exercise our faith. But after you know, we, we see this parable of persistence in faith. Jesus also, as I already read, he gives us a picture of what God wants to see as far as humility in prayer. And so there are a couple more things that happen when we do pray. And the last two would be that we experience God's mercies when we pray. And also we experience God's exaltation. So let's spend a little bit of time um, finishing up by by reading this this last parable again. Because it's very important for us. In verse 9 it says, He told also this parable who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I read this again because we might have that down. We might have persistence in prayer. And we might have the, the idea that we are doing well in, in, in prayer. But the thing that happens is often we get prideful. And I think it's more insidious in our own prayer lives to be prideful but when we actually pray humbly like a true child of God, we, that's when we experience God's mercies. When we think of prayer, we might, when we think of great prayer, someone who's a great prayer, we might think of beautifully written words. We might think of those prayers they have in public ceremonies and things like that. And we think, oh, there, there's true prayer. But what does God see? What would God call a good prayer? God be merciful to me, a sinner. Because it's a prayer that's made in humility. And those of those uh, children of God who know they are in desperate need of mercy, who know they don't deserve the grace that they're getting from God, those are the ones that God gives mercy to. He loves to give mercy to them. He loves to put that balm on their, on their wounds. In Hebrews chapter six, for, uh, four, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter four, verse 16, we are, we are told and exhorted, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Scripture, yes, tells us to approach God confidently, but not confidently in ourselves, confidently in faith, in trusting God's character to give us mercy. And when we're confident in God, we ourselves are humbled. And when we are humbled and we approach God, God will exalt us. And that's the, the last thing for our, for our purposes that, we, that happens in prayer is that we experience God's exaltation. Prayer is an opportunity to humble ourselves. I don't think we... I don't think we actively humble ourselves enough. I, I certainly don't. And I, I rarely pray for even for the Lord to humble me because it's one of those things that we often forget, but God loves humility. What is humility? It's not thinking of, uh, it's not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. That's not original to me, but it's a good measure of humility. It's thinking of God first. It's not uh, priding ourselves in our own self-righteous or self-confidence. And when we do that, God commends it. And by commending it, lifts us up and, and exalts us. And in the case of this particular man, he, he justifies him because that was an in, in action and a prayer of faith. So that is what happens when the children of God pray. But let me give you a few more tips to a persistent and a humble prayer life. Just real quick. Just four things. Number one, pray privately and regularly. Make prayer a habit in your personal life. And I think that's hard because it's easy to pray in public. It's easy to pray even uh, for meals and things like that. But it's hard to pray in your personal life. But that's what Jesus tells us. He tells us to start here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
private prayer is so important because the strength that you get from prayer, the, the things that you learn in prayer in private, you, you take into public and you live out in your faith. There's a lot more I could say about it, but I would simply recommend a book. It's the best book I've ever read on private prayer called The Secret Key to Heaven by uh, Thomas Brooks. And frankly, it's, it's about 300 pages long. It's a great read. And, and 100 of the pages, full one-third of the book, he's answering objections that people have of, oh, I don't have time for private prayer. You know, he's answering objections for 100 pages. So it's, it's very good. And he takes down any argument that we would have against private prayer. Um, secondly, we should uh, not only pray privately and regularly, we should pray with the Bible, which not only means making the Bible or making this part of our devotions and our Bible reading, pray when we do read the Bible, but also let us let us uh, use the Bible to inform our own prayers, the content of our prayers, and then we will pray in more alignment with the will of God. Thirdly, we should pray with other Christians. And this, is a, this could be a message all in itself, but pray with other Christians. We can see what happens when Christians pray, in, for instance, in Acts chapter 12, if you want to look that up in your own time. But pray with others. We have a uh, prayer meeting that's on break, but as soon as you know, we get back to our, our regular meetings for, for prayer, for renaissance, join it. Join it and push through. Be persistent with it. Frankly, and I mean, we'll just be openly with this, prayer meetings for all churches are usually the, the least attended meetings for churches. And it's usually because people don't understand prayer, but prayer with other Christians is so important. And lastly, just to start off with what Jesus told us is simply expect opposition in your prayer life. You'll notice you'll get up at 4 o'clock tomorrow morning and you'll say, I'm going to pray. But you know what? Distractions will come up. You'll get a text message. Alarms will go off. Babies will cry. You know, or in, uh, Toddlers will cry in my case. And other things will come up and, and fight for your uh, attention. But as Jesus told us in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, don't lose heart. Everything will attempt to distract you. People won't show up for prayer meetings and things like that, but don't give up. There's a virtue and a, there's a faith in persistence. And lastly, I have a lot of lastlies. I have a lot of closing thoughts. But honestly, our, our greatest need, as this last parable shows us, is our own justification. But we can approach God in prayer and be justified. Our greatest need is simply to be forgiven as forgiven from our own sin, to be changed from sinners to saints, to believe on God in faith and to cling close to Him that we might go to heaven when we die. And we do that through prayer. So I would encourage you today, if you are not a believer, if you are looking at this and you're like, I'm kind of on the outside looking in, is this what a child of God does? Let me invite you to be a child of God and to pray and expect God's mercy when you do approach Him and you acknowledge that you're a sinner. God will forgive you. That's our, that's our promise in Christ. So let us pray together. Father, we are thankful again for Your Word. We are thankful for the, the lessons we see in these parables. And I ask, Lord, that we would um, digest them in our own life and they would come out to show us what true prayer looks like. And that, Lord, we would apply these things in our own life, but not 
simply as a formula, but Lord, as a way to get closer to your heart. So again, we thank you. And I ask that for anyone in here or listening elsewhere that who doesn't know you, that they would simply come close to you and understanding that you are forgiving and you are a loving God would come close to you and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. I believe in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would all cling close to Christ in prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.